see you all this morning. Hello, if you're joining online as well. Um, we need to pray for Rosie to start with. She practically had a heart attack when Hannah handed over to Rosie and Martin. It's, uh, I'm sure she could have done it anyway. Um, it's lovely to, uh, t- to be together this morning. Um, in our preaching at the moment, we are in a series in the Gospel of Matthew. If you're um, new to faith, it's an eyewitness account of Jesus' life written by a guy called Matthew. And um, we're in a section of it, um, chapter 5, if you're, you're following through, which is called Sermon on a Mount. Jesus is doing a, a sermon on a mountain site. Um, and we're going to be in that, um, that section, Matthew 5 through to, uh, chapter 5 through to chapter 7, during uh, our month of prayer to, to really help us to pray, I suppose, kind of pulling on the threads that uh, that sermon gives to really help us um, in our prayer life. Um, there's loads in it, so invariably we're only really going to be able to scratch the surface. So if you want a little bit more kind of in it, our friends uh, over at Revelation Church Manchester that we planted a few years back from here, uh, they did a series on the Sermon on the Mount just uh, last summer actually, so you can check a little bit more um, out uh, on their website. Um, but the Sermon on the Mount is, is a vision of life with Jesus as King. It's, it's the blessed life, if you like. It's a description of who we now are because Jesus is King. Not ourselves, not some uh, external set of rules, not societal expectations. And um, if actually you're not in that place, that's not how you describe your relationship with Jesus, with him as king of your life. I just want to invite you to kind of um, see uh, as we go through these things, what it means to have Jesus as king of your life, to see what it means to, to be with Jesus. Now, uh, Martin, who's just on notices here, he uh, started us off uh, last week looking at the Beatitudes at the start of chapter five. And just like the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, They're not a list of rules that we kind of uh, aim for, but they're a description of who we increasingly are because they're a description of who Jesus is. And then Jesus goes on in the rest of chapter 5 to talk about how the whole Old Testament law is summed up, is fulfilled in himself so that he now gets to define who we are and how we are. And he's reorienting his hearer's perspective as to what his kingdom is like with him as king. So the question for us really is, are we listening to what he has to say? Now, Jesus is speaking mainly to um, Jews at this point. They would have had lots of traditions that were really um, important to them. And and before we start thinking like, come on, all these traditions, put them to one side. Can't you just see Jesus here? We have traditions too, right? You know, we just finished uh, Christmas celebrations. Um, There are people that are militant about whether presents are opened in the morning or in the afternoon. So let's just find out. I don't know you'll be able to see this limited section here if you're watching online. But if your presents open in the morning, person, do you want to put your hand up? Yeah, these are the correct people. There we go. <laughs> Presence in the afternoon. Yeah, God bless you guys. I'll go and hide. There's more of you. Or like people who do Christmas dinner at five o'clock in the afternoon. I, I don't, un- there's, there's nods. I don't, please tell me how, the logic afterwards. Even have like dinner ahead of Christmas dinner. I, I don't understand it at all. Please explain it to me afterwards. But what Jesus is doing is something a little bit less, drawing on traditions that the people of the time have. So in this passage, it's prayer and giving and fasting. And once again, reorienting them around the fact that he is king and the fact that his kingdom has come to us and is increasingly making itself known in our lives. And that is still what Jesus wants to do with us in our lives. He wants to demonstrate that he is king and make his kingdom dawn in our lives increasingly each day. Do you know there is no such a thing as just another day with Jesus? He's always revealing more of himself to you. 
He's always inviting you in. He's always working in our hearts and all with the aim that we would be increasingly transformed into his likeness and provoke others to come on the journey with us too. He wants to make himself known to us and he wants to change us. And that means some of life will look different, doesn't it? It means some things may need to change. It means some, some of them will be deep-seated. But Jesus is so kind to us and he wants better for us. So let's, let's see what he's got to say. So this is Matthew chapter, five, uh, chapter 6, reading from uh, verse 5. Words are on the screen or on your screen at home. Here's what he says. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. So here's the first thing, all about prayer. Prayer is to be a when, not an if. Now just imagine for a moment, what if we really went after prayer this year as a community, as a church family? What would happen if we fully and wholly gave ourselves to calling on our Father in heaven who is kind and gracious and compassionate, who loves to empower us, who loves to come alongside us, who gives us everything we need to walk the Christian life, who wants to extend his glory through the earth, through us, weak and limited as we are. He wants to do it. What would happen if we fully and wholly chose to give ourselves to him in prayer? I wonder, do you think that we would become more like Jesus? Do you think that we would see even more of God's blessing on our ministries? Do you think more people would come into the a saving knowledge of who Jesus is and get baptized? Do you think we'd be changed along the way? Do you think we'd see him do things that we didn't even think were possible? Well, Jesus makes the assumption that we will pray. That's what he says, verse five. And when you pray, he goes, well, why is that? Is some just like old Jewish practice or something? Last time I checked, Jesus wasn't really the kind of guy that just did things because they'd always been done that way. No, he gave the old things a newer and fuller meaning that was oriented, orienting religious life around himself. So why does he make that assumption? Well, because when Jesus, who is kind and gracious and loving and compassionate and glorious and sovereign and powerful and majestic and merciful and almighty. He's the one who lived and died and who rose again on high so that our sins could be forgiven. We could be made whole. We could come into saving relationship with him, have God live inside of us, empowering us through the Holy Spirit when he is the one who is king of the kingdom. Of course, we'll chat to him. Of course, we'd rely on him. Of course, we'd ask him for help. Just to um, continue the, the Christmas theme a moment, 
one of the things that um, fascinates me about uh, Christmas is what do the royal family do? I wonder what their, their Christmas is like. You know, these um, figures that uh, are well-known in the nation, kind of sitting around table together. I want to know, as they pull the crackers, do they wear the funny little party hats, you know, the, the paper hats thing? And I want to know, does the queen have a special one? Or if she doesn't, does she get a pen and just like draw some jewels on it, stick it on her head, turn to Charles and go like, still going, you know, something like this. Or what about the cracker jokes? Can you imagine Camilla reading out to the family about the policeman who says to his tummy, you are under a vest? You know, do you, do you think that happens? What, what about... <laughs> what about the Queen's speech? Do you think they sit around and watch the Queen's speech? I mean, how ridiculous would that be? Maybe they have a live version. You know, maybe they set the Queen up on a table, give her the script again, and she delivers it. Or maybe there's some characters in that family, aren't there? So maybe one of them does a mock speech. You know, that would be fun, wouldn't it? I love to imagine what they do. But actually, as, as we imagine that, that, that family is, um, they're relatively inaccessible to us, aren't they? Like, we don't really kind of see uh, much of it. You might, like, hear bits about it, but they're not particularly available to us. And yet they can totally access one another, wherever and however they want to, seemingly. We enjoyed, Emma and I enjoyed watching The Crown last year, and even just the illustration of Margaret, who's, uh, who's passed on now, the Queen's sister, just phoning her up at all manner of times, kind of inconvenient as they were, and yet because of the relationship, you pick up the phone, she speaks to her. You know, as we think about that, we see just a small microcosm of what our Father in heaven is like. He's awesome, yet he's available. He's powerful, yet he's present. He is holy, and yet he's here. And Jesus, in this passage, is just about to describe our Father in heaven. It's the first description of him, of the Father in Matthew. And Jesus describes him as a Father who cares about every aspect of your life, excluding nothing the things you need, the ways you relate to people, the temptations that you face. Of course we'd approach him. Of course we'd talk to him. Of course we would give up our agendas for the sake of getting on his agenda. That's who we were made to be. There's a church in Peterborough called Kingsgate and um, they do some uh, training for lots of churches around the UK and, and Europe that, um, that we're part of a couple of times a year. Um, the strategy team um, go and kind of spend a couple of days there. And, and they, they have this mantra they were talking about um, one time, which I think last time I spoke on prior, I used it, but there was an interruption in the live stream. So I'm going to use that as permission to use it again, which basically is this. Here's what they say of prayer. Anything not birthed in prayer is birthed in pride. Ouch. Ouch. I was just reflecting. I thought, if my parenting is not birthed in prayer and dependence on Jesus, then I'm kind of saying, okay, yeah, God, I'll just get on with it myself, thanks. If my work, my relationships with, with others, the meetings I have, the people I see, is, if that's not birthed in prayer, is that not covered in prayer, I'm just saying, oh, yeah, I can do it myself, thanks, Jesus. Even my friendships, do I pray for those around me? Because if they're prayerless, then they're prideful. How silly when Jesus is right in front of me making his kingdom known in an ever-increasing way to me, redefining my whole life. And yet I think, it's all right, Jesus, so I'll, I'll get and undo it, thanks. 
I'm, I'm okay, thank you. You know, I'll, I'll get on with processing my pain, forming my future, and doing the things that you've called me to without you, thanks. That's in essence, what we're doing if we are, quote, unquote, too busy to pray. I can really identify with the C.S. Lewis quote that's been in the... Um, month of prayer booklets that Esme referred to that we've, we've been using. Here's what he says. He says, I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God. It changes me. I loved how uh, Harriet put it in one of the contributions in, um, in worship um, last Sunday. She said, Lord, when I look inward, I see a mess. When I look outward, I see, just see a different mess. Only when I look at you. Do I see order amidst the chaos? I don't know about you, I really need changing. Wow, I mean, when we were, I hope that's amen to all of us, you know, not just me. (laughs) When we were praying last week about like growing in our character and our godliness, I was like, man, there is so much for me to pray for. My wife said the same. Only she was praying for me at the time, so, you know. (laughs) What if we chose to start 2022 in prayer to our Father. So when you pray, Jesus says, we're we're four words in and here's what he says. When you pray, you mustn't be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. So here's the second thing. Prayer is about posture, not performance. Posture, not performance. Now, standing and praying in synagogues um, and on the street corners were actually relatively common in Jewish life. So each synagogue service, someone would have been asked to stand and pray for the people. And whenever a, a public fast was, uh, was proclaimed, people would stand on the street corners and pray. So um, uh, it, it, So it's not the doing them that's the problem. It's kind of what's behind the action that that Jesus is commenting on. And Jesus is likely talking about the Pharisees here, a kind of religious group of of leaders, uh, if you like. When he he uses the term hypocrites, um, he's he's most certainly including them, uh, if not talking exclusively about them. Now, the politics of Jesus' day was very, very fragmented. A bit like ours, I suppose. There were broad parties or schools of thought, but within them, there were lots of different, uh, lots of disagreements. And so, you know, if we just think even kind of in, in our system, like if, uh, if old Boris wants to make a decision, um, he doesn't just consult himself, does he? He's got the cabinet to think about. He's got his advisors. He's got the 1922 committee, the moderate wing of the party. The, we've only just finished talk of the hard Brexiteers, haven't we? Uh, he's got parliament to think about, and even Carrie seems to make herself known as well. So, you know, all, all those different people, you can make a similar analogy with the Labour Party as well, that there's a broad ideology, but fragments within Now, in Jesus' day, the big political question was how, for the the Jewish people, was how they were to respond to their Roman occupiers and oppressors, the kind of heathen power that ruled the lands that they were in. And they answered it in lots of different ways. So you had um, some of them who would have called themselves zealots that said, the way we will respond to these Romans is to fight them, and then God will bring his kingdom through us. And Jesus even had one of the zealots as one of his disciples. 
There was a community called the Essenes who basically said in response to this question, we will just get out of here. We'll get out of Jerusalem and the areas around, and we will go off to kind of around the Dead Sea, and it's where the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, were written and formed, if you've heard, uh, if you've come across them, a place called Qumran. They said, we, we won't have anything to do with the Romans. We'll get out of them. He had a group called the Sadducees. He said, well, if we work with the Romans, then maybe God will bring his kingdom by sort of seeing our partnership with them and willingness just to ride it out. And so they were the aristocracy. They, they had lots of positions of power. And um, the Sanhedrin, the, the sort of Jewish council, was mainly made up of Sadducees. And then you had the Pharisees that Jesus is likely talking about here. And um, their contention was, well, we're going to stay here, but we don't want to join in with these heathen Romans. In, fa- in fact, the way we think we should things should be done, is that if the nation can be as pure as possible, if they can live by the rules that God has given, then maybe God will see our purity, see our righteousness, bring his kingdom, and kick the Romans out. So they were almost like a party of the people, if you like. They just wanted the people to live by the rules. Not even just the rules that were in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, but a whole load of other ones they created to, in theory, just kind of go the extra mile as well. And Jesus' critique of them is that they've totally lost the heart behind the rules. That they were wanting to be seen as rule obeyers more than actually love the gods that the rules were claimed to honor and the people that they claimed to help. And for them, prayer had become a public performance, become a, a demonstration for the sake of others, a, a, a means of control rather than a deep reliance on the one who gave their every breath become a tick box, a platform. And Jesus pulls off their masks. That's what the word hypocrite literally means, one who wears a mask. You're pretending to be someone that you are not. And once again, he casts a way better vision of his kingdom with him as the king. He says this in verse six, but when you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, Jesus isn't anti-public or corporate prayer. There's plenty of New Testament examples about that and encouragements to do that. But where we can find our hearts tempted to think more about how we sound to others or how we look as we worship and pray than our posture towards God, then Jesus gives the perfect antidote. And it's the secret place. The secret place the quiet place, the private place, the place where nobody else sees, the truest audience of one, the place where we are formed. We can't impress people there. We can't correct people there. We can't shout down others or show off there. We can't even wear a mask there. Or at least if we do, it's as silly as the child who puts his hands over his eyes and claims to be hiding. It's just ridiculous before our Father who knows everything. Actually, who you are in the private place dictates who you are in the public place. We're a few years into um, planting churches now, and um, one of the things I'm so grateful to God for is we have some phenomenal church leaders, you know, Ben here and Steve over in Birmingham and uh, Duncan in Manchester, Rick up in Newcastle. There's loads of brilliant men and women on their teams as, as well. And 
have the privilege of knowing some of them fairly well. And um, one of the things that stands out the most to be to me about these men that I love and admire so much is, is not necessarily their gifting, though that, that is present. It's not necessarily their leadership measure, though you know, present too. It's not their communication ability or their knowledge of scripture or strategy or society. It's not even their good looks, you know? I'll leave that one up to you to decide. But it's this. Each morning, I know that these guys get up, they dust off the disappointments that are all around them, they fix their eyes on Jesus, and they pray in a room most probably with the door shut. And you know, when I wake up, my mind is so kind as to deposit in me all kinds of worries and anxieties and frustrations. I can lack perspective. My focus can get inward. I can spiral down into myself if I'm not careful, can't I? There you go. Didn't quite shout amen. You know, I can really identify with this George Miller quote that has been in my face all week because it's been opposite the week one section in the booklet. It says, he said, the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. It's no wonder a man like that went on to start lots of orphanages and schools and churches because who you are in the private place dictates who you are in the public place. We see it in Acts 19. It's a story called The Sons of Sceva. And it talks about some um, itinerant Jewish exorcists. There's a job description and a half, isn't it? Basically, people that went around casting demons out, out of people. And these guys decided to have a go at it in the name of Jesus. And so uh, they, they met one guy that was being oppressed by uh, some demonic forces and, and said, I adjure you by the Jesus who Paul proclaims. And, and the demons actually spoke back to them and said, well, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And then basically the man that they were inhabiting beat them up and they kind of ran away scared because they weren't God's people. There was no connection in the secret place. Their hearts were not given over to him. You see, in the secret place, something happens. You know that C.S. Lewis quote earlier that said, prayer is not about changing God, it changes us. You know, we said earlier, this is all about Jesus revealing himself to us more and his kingdom dawning ever increasingly in our lives. Remember this whole sermon, in fact, is about Jesus reorienting our ways of thinking to center them on himself and purifying our hearts. That's what happens in the secret place when we take time to be with him and we start or finish our day with him, when we talk to him on the commute or school run, when we catch a few moments alone with him, is what will happen when you pick up this booklet, turn to, what are we today? Week two, Sunday the 9th. We're praying for our, ch our church today that we would hear his voice. As a church, we would know the voice of God. And as we pray, something happens in our hearts. Jesus shows himself to us in our hearts. He shapes us, he changes us, he molds us, he empowers us just as we do the activity of praying. It's what happens, as Jesus said in verse five, when you pray. It says in verse six that we'll be rewarded. And that reward is to see and know more of Jesus, both now and into eternity. Folks, what if, 
we chose to start 2022 in prayer to our Father. The third thing is, and the last thing is this, prayer is about heart, not hysteria. Heart, not, not hysteria. And um, Jesus says this in verse seven, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. And what he's meaning there, he's talking about the, the pagan religion practices of the day who essentially would just repeat the name of their God endlessly and ceaselessly uh, until they felt like something had changed. He's talking about empty phrases, principles without heart, trotting out the right words. I found one of the commentators, Don Carson, really helpful where he, he just reminded us that such thoughtless babble can occur both in liturgical and in spontaneous prayers alike. You know, 10 years ago, um, when we'd, um, we'd just moved into um, the building here, um, I remember uh, at a time we were worshiping together, and, and one man, his, his heart full of joy, he prayed out, God, you are infinitesimally great. And I didn't really know what it meant at the time, so I had to look it up in the dictionary because some people seem to be smirking at the time. Uh, it means immeasurably small. You know, <laughs> God, you are immeasurably smallly great. And yet, that sort of thing is not actually what Jesus is meaning here. Hey, we've all said words wrong before, haven't we? We've all said, I don't know, um, uh, I must increase, you must decrease, Lord, or, or something like that. We've all uh, had persons of the Trinity ill-defined in our prayers or, or prayed something that sounds like mindless babble just to ourselves, let alone everybody else. Jesus isn't anti-rich language either, or deep theology, or thought-through contributions. He loves it. I see if you're, if you're gifted in those ways, if your heart is in the right place, then, then use them. You know, it, really, our contributions are saying what we see of Jesus. If you've been blessed with the ability to use language and theology in a, in a rich way, do that. It helps all of us. You know, some, of you, some of you can write poetry. There's absolutely nothing wrong with spending the week just being with Jesus, writing some kind of contribution, and on a Sunday, come to the mic and bring it. It blesses all of us. But what he is saying is saying that we don't need to try and sound like someone else to be heard. We don't need to speak the lingo. Jesus is saying it is all about our hearts. We've got a friend of the church called Derek Tidball. He's, um, he's a great preacher and he's with us every uh, once in a while. And uh, he was preaching on this passage and I heard him say this. I absolutely love this quote. He said, God hears our prayers, not as through a loudspeaker, but as through a stethoscope. And to that end, how great is verse eight when Jesus says, your father knows what you need before you even ask him. Wow. It frees us to simply be ourselves before God with all of our limitations and our, I wish I knew the Bible better and does this make any sense and I wish I prayed more, you know, all of those tight prayers but knowing that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, that Jesus has presented us holy and blameless before him, and we have a God who looks on the heart. You don't ever need to worry, publicly or privately, about whether you sound good enough to God, because Jesus has already made you acceptable in his sight. We need only look at the state of our heart and ask if we are truly living as the new creations that he has made us to be and promised to empower us to be. 
Jesus talks in, in Luke chapter 18. He, he told a parable about um, a Pharisee, so externally impressive, knew all the language, and a tax collector who's kind of working for the Romans, would have been hated because of working for this Roman enemy. And they were both in the temple. And um, uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 11, records it like this. The Pharisee, he's standing by himself, and he prays this way. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You know, as though God needed to be reminded of that. You can bet some people weren't concentrating and just like, hmm, hmm, you know, at the time, don't you? But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's one of the richest prayers in the whole Bible because it's a heart that was desperate for God. And Jesus goes on to give us a prayer to help us, the Lord's Prayer. It has helped countless Christians down the generations, both as a framework and as something to literally repeat. I find it so helpful just doing it regularly, just saying the Lord's Prayer. And so as we are encouraged to be ourselves before God, not to wear a mask, but to recognize our need of him, as we're encouraged that he will help us to pray and that he will form us in the secret place because he wants to reveal more of himself to us. As we imagine once again, what could happen if we began 2022 in prayer to our Father? I want us to end by saying the Lord's Prayer together, which will come up on the screen. We'll have the band up as we do this as well. And let's just say this together slowly. It's Matthew 6, verse 9 and following. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Oh yeah, the, church, the early church added the next bit. Amen. Let's stand together.